Kia ora. I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, Brexit is done. But what does this mean for New Zealand? I can say really confidently there is not going to be any shutting of the doors uh, for Kiwis. I only see upsides in terms of Kiwi access to the UK, so there's no rush. Reassuring words from British High Commissioner Laura Clark, but let's wind it back a little, shall we? And I will go to Parliament and propose that the British people decide our future in Europe through an in-out referendum on Thursday the 23rd of June. So here at ITV News, uh, at uh, just gone half past four in the morning, we are calling it for leave to win uh, this referendum. An extraordinary moment in British history. Ladies and gentlemen, dare to dream that the dawn is breaking on an independent United Kingdom. The British people have voted to leave the European Union and their will must be respected. But I do not think it would be right for me to try to be the captain that steers our country to its next destination. I have just been to Buckingham Palace where Her Majesty the Queen has asked me to form a new government. Brexit means Brexit. The campaign was fought, the vote was held, turnout was high, and the public gave their verdict. It is in the best interests of the country for a new Prime Minister to lead that effort. Boris Johnson is set to walk in this door behind me tomorrow as Britain's next Prime Minister, realising a long-held ambition. My friends, good morning, everybody, my friends. Well, we did it. We did it. We pulled it off, didn't we? And uh, with this mandate and this majority, we will at last be able to do what? Paying attention. When the United Kingdom joined the European Union, Jacinda Ardern was minus seven years old. Richard Nixon was the US president. Little Jimmy Osmond was top of the UK charts. Over the past three and a half years, it's been political turmoil as Britain tries to reverse that union. Technically, it happened on January the 31st, but it ain't over till it's over, and it sure ain't over yet. So what happens now? Laura Clark spells it out as much as she can do anyway. So the, the UK left the EU on the weekend, um, and then so now we're in the next stage of, of what we do in terms of the UK's relationship with the EU, but also the UK's uh, position on global trade and on the world um, as an as a independent nation. So, so it's, it's quite a significant moment, but the, what we have right now is we're in what's called a transition phase. So from the 1st of February to the end of this year, which means there's a lot of continuity. So not much is really changing right now. So there's continuity for businesses, for individuals. And during that time, we're then negotiating the future UK-EU relationship, a trade agreement, how we cooperate on security issues. And then there's the opportunity for us to, to negotiate free trade agreements with partners like New Zealand. What do New Zealand and the UK have to work out? What do we have to work out? Well... 
We've done a lot of the groundwork already. So, um, as you know, the referendum happened in June 2016. Later in 2016, we set up a trade policy dialogue uh, between the UK and New Zealand, looking at all the areas that we would want to cover. So we've been having lots of conversations. Um, David Parker has met with Liz Truss, our trade secretary, several times, most recently in London, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, But it's really about, you know, what do we want to get out of a free trade agreement. Uh, And as you know, New Zealand is one of those top countries for a post-Brexit free trade agreement. And I generally talk about that FTA, that free trade agreement, in three broad areas. One is what can we do in trade in goods? So obviously agricultural exports, but also um, buses. So for example, the electric buses that are on the streets of Wellington, Optair electric buses that are are manufactured in the UK, they pay a 10% tariff. So looking at things like that, um, looking at wine, whiskey, um, car parts, all that sort of thing. So really, looking at uh, uh, liberalising tariffs there. So that's the first area. The second is what we can do in services. Um, And, you know, that's really the forward-looking, ambitious, standard-setting type of work. You know, looking at what can we do in the area of fintech, what can we do with the digital economy. We're very interested in New Zealand's digital economy partnership agreement with Chile and Singapore. Um, And really, you know, setting setting the tone on that sort of issue. And um, Fintech New Zealand made a good trip to the UK last year and will be soon doing a report setting out its recommendations in the in the fintech area. And then the third area is really about values. You know, how you're not just looking at the bottom line, but how you're looking for trade to benefit everyone. And New Zealand has what it calls its trade for all agenda. Um, And, you know, there are lots of areas where we think we can work together closely. So um, the UK is very committed to taking a leading role on on tackling climate change. We're hosting COP, the big UN climate change conference in Glasgow later this year. So we'll be looking at how we can work together with New Zealand on those sorts of sustainability issues. So... There's a lot to work through. There's a lot of detail to work through. But I hope that it's an opportunity to um, build the prosperity of both our countries, but also to enhance cooperation in other areas as well. Tell me a bit about your your role as High Commissioner and, mm. and what is your involvement exactly in terms of these discussions? Are you yeah. involved at the coalface? So we have negotiating teams with lead negotiators in each country and that's not me. So we have a London-based uh, team um, and then the New Zealand team actually is, is headed up by New Zealand's ambassador to Ireland. Um, but So we have capital-based teams, if you like, but my job is really really here in New Zealand, building those relationships, building our understanding of what New Zealand wants to get out of this, you know, explaining what our goals are. Um, And so it's really about those relationships. It's the understanding and it's, of course, influencing. And that's what my counterpart in the UK will be doing as well. So I have an expanding team of trade policy experts um, who are building relationships or have really good relationships in the agricultural sector, in the um, in the tech sector, all sorts of areas. In terms of the relationship between New Zealand and the UK, what are the key issues on the table in terms of how that might change as a result of Brexit? 
what we've seen since the referendum was has been some people saying, oh, well, Brexit means the UK is turning in on itself. It's becoming less global. And actually, there's been a lot of effort to say this, that's not the case. In fact, the opposite is true. And we're walking the talk, particularly here in the Pacific, where we're opening up three new high commissions, so three new diplomatic posts. So we're doubling our diplomatic presence in the Pacific. In a public talk on Tuesday in Auckland, Laura Clark acknowledged the UK's standing in the Pacific had waned in recent years. She says the country has had a long-standing presence in the region, but scaled this down in the 2000s. Now, under its newly named Pacific Uplift strategy, Ms Clark says the UK is stepping up alongside partners Australia and New Zealand. In April last year, the British government said it would open new diplomatic posts in Vanuatu, Samoa and Tonga. The missions, which in Tonga and Vanuatu will piggyback on New Zealand's high commissions there, are a doubling of the UK's diplomatic presence in the Pacific. That's really important for UK and New Zealand uh, because we've got a lot of shared interests in this region, working with our Pacific partners, tackling climate change, protecting our oceans. Uh, and so I think that's kind of one manifestation of the UK taking on this very glo- even more global role. One of the biggest areas of uncertainty for New Zealanders centres around immigration and visas. There are more than 200,000 Kiwis living permanently in the UK and many thousands more visit each year. So will Britain become less open? Is the classic Kiwi OE under threat? As with anything, it's up for discussion. But Laura Clark says don't lose too much sleep over it. Of course, there will be changes to our immigration policy settings uh, because at the moment we have freedom of movement um, with the EU of course once we've fully left at the end of this transition period there will no longer be free movement in the same way and we will move most likely to what I call a country agnostic uh, immigration system which is based on skills a kind of skills based immigration system and I see that only bringing benefits for New Zealanders actually. how, How do you mean? So you've already got your existing routes. I like to say that New Zealand's got one of the best deals in terms of immigration. So if you look at where we are currently, uh, New Zealanders can go and travel in the UK for up to six months with no visa at all. And then those that do apply for a visa, we have really high success rate. Again, it's 97% of people who apply for visas get them. And your different routes are the, the OE visa, the Youth Mobility Scheme, the Ancestry visa, and then the route that most use, which is the Tier 2 Skilled Worker visa. So there's lots of different routes for Kiwis to go and live, work, travel in the UK. And then looking forward, I think a points-based, skills-based immigration system that is not focused on geography will be of benefit because Kiwis bring enormous skills. Uh, And so Kiwis who want to go and work in the legal sector and the financial sector as teachers, as um, doctors, there will be huge scope there, I think. But I say all of this with a bit of a um, health warning that we don't yet know exactly what the the detail will be. Um, But I... Uh, the economic reality is that the UK is always, its economy is going to need people coming in um, um, and it's going to need the brightest and the best and New Zealanders, you know, stand to benefit there, I think. You mentioned the youth mobility and Mm. ancestry visas, the youth mobility visa being uh, effectively a two-year work Mm. visa for people under the age of 30, the ancestry visa being you can apply for this if you have a grandparent who was born in the UK. A grandparent, and it's a five-year visa, yeah. Would you expect to see any changes to either of those visas? 
I don't see that there's, I mean, I've not heard any talk of it. And again, I can't rule anything out, but I, I kind of think if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, and those systems currently work very well, I think. Um, and the OE visa, importantly, we made a change to it a few years ago. You used to just be able to um, work for a year, travel for a year. Now people have total flexibility. So if they want, they can work for the full two years. Um, so I, I would not imagine that those Roots would change. You know, the OE is kind of, you know, it's a really valued thing, I think, to both our countries, and there's no reason why you would change it. And in fact, we've already just in the last six months made two quite significant um, visa change. Well, three, actually, if I go back a little bit further. Uh, so in summer, northern summer last year, Kiwis got access to the e-gates at Heathrow, which is, seems like a small thing. But actually, in practical terms, that's really important in terms of ease of arrival into into the UK. But the two new visa routes that we've announced recently, one is a graduate scheme, which is a post-study visa. So until recently, if you were studying in the UK as an overseas national, as soon as your degree was done, you basically, you know, you didn't have much longer to stay. Now it's a two-year visa during which you can um, work, work out what your longer-term plans are. So that's really important in terms of people who come and study in the UK and then have a bit of breathing space to work out what they do next. The second visa that's just coming into force this month is about attracting researchers, scientists, mathematicians, and that's a global visa. It's a fast-track visa service, and there's no cap on it at all. And that's really about attracting the brightest and the best um, to support our research collaborations, our work on innovation, you know, thinking about things like AI and the digital economy, all that sort of thing. And so that's quite an exciting new route as well. And I imagine that Kiwis would benefit from that. You mentioned freedom of movement mm. earlier. One idea which has been mooted is the idea of total freedom of mm. movement between New Zealand and the United Kingdom. Is that something that's being considered? What are the complications there? I think there are always complications in terms of what um, precedent you're setting for elsewhere in the world. And I think probably the priority will be on getting a global immigration system that is, as I say, country agnostic and is based on skills and is based on the economic needs uh, of the UK while also providing opportunity for coming into the UK. Uh, so I would imagine that we would be going more for a global approach. In the immediate aftermath of mm. Brexit, I remember actually I was working on the day mm. and talking to people about this and they were saying, look, this could be great for New Zealand mm. because this could almost be like a, a commonwealth renaissance I mean, I always think, yeah, yes. I mean, the Commonwealth is really important. All these long-standing partners are really important. I just always caution against people who think we're going back to the future or whatever whatever the expression would be. <laughs> yeah. I can't quite work it out in time zones. But, you know, we're not going back to where we were before. Uh, we are looking forward. We are, you know, strengthening our relationships with old partners. We're, we're strengthening relationships with newer partners and um, and wanting to have the best possible uh, relationships, but in the current context, in the current geopolitical context, uh, looking at how we work to champion free trade, looking at how we um, work on challenges to the rules-based order. Um, and I think that the UK of of 2020 is very different and the world of 2020 is very different to the world of, of 1973. Many New Zealanders 
will be dual passport holders. Mm. What will Brexit mean mm. for them? They will still travel if they're dual passport holders. They can still obviously go to the UK the same way as they can now, and they will still apply in the same way if they're travelling to Europe. They travel for, apply for Schengen visas. Yeah. What you wouldn't have, of course, what you won't have is this, is is the freedom of movement in quite the same way. But if you had, say, a dual national living and working in Germany, then the understanding is that they can then apply for a kind of settled status in Germany um, on the basis of that employment. What about for someone, and there will be fewer fewer people will fall in this category, but New Zealanders with, for example, an Irish passport, mm. what would this mean for them? Uh, so a New Zealander with an Irish passport will ha- continue to have EU freedom of movement, so they'll be able to travel um, all throughout the UK. And, of course, we have a common travel ag- agreement between Ireland and the UK as well. So, so no, not, many, not many downsides, really. And, of course, the UK arrangements will be as I've talked about already, yeah. In, in terms of British Kiwis, I suppose, mm. you know, they might be feeling the pressure to actually get over there as soon as possible to take advantage of free movement while it still lasts. I mean, I would say there's no rush. There's no there's no sudden sort of shutting of the doors. That, that The Kiwis are always going to be able to move and travel and work in the UK. I can say that, you know, I think you've probably heard me being cautious and saying exactly what form our future immigration settings are going to be, but I can say really confidently there is not going to be any shutting of the doors uh, for Kiwis. I only see upsides in terms of Kiwi access to the UK, so there's no rush. You know, by all means, get off, start the OE, um, but there will always be those opportunities, and that's a really, really important part of the relationship that we're able to live, work, travel, contribute in each other's countries. So there's absolutely no cliff edge and no concern. A lot of people in New Zealand, some people in New Zealand, might actually object to the idea of closer ties with Britain and they might call to mind the effects of colonisation, the not necessarily disastrous but um, hampering effects of Britain joining the Mm. EEC as it was then in 1973. Mm. Does that ever weigh on your mind? Um, I think that we all come with our own histories and I think that what is important is carving out a relationship that's focused on the future but you can only do that if you really understand where you've come from and you've talked about that and you understand um, that past. I think that's the same for um, you know Britain's colonial past or pre-colonial past just as it is the more more recent past. An ability to talk about these things frankly is important so you have a shared sense of where you've come from and then a shared sense of what you want, where you want to go uh, together. Um, 1973 and all that, people do raise it with me. Mm. And there are those that still really remember it and, and, and remember it as a sort of, you know, as a very significant moment, and which it absolutely was. But what, some, what lots of people also say is that actually that was really important for New Zealand because it really needed to diversify its trade routes. And in fact, when you look at the statistics, when you look at the, really ni- the, the graphs, people sort of imply that all of New Zealand's trade went to the UK and then there was a cliff edge. Actually, a good few years before 1973, New Zealand was already diversifying. Trade to the UK was already declining. Um, and, you know, I think you would look now and say, well, it wouldn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for your biggest trading partner to be on the opposite 
end of the world. Uh, and so New Zealand has done an incredibly good job of, of agricultural reform, trade liberalisation, uh, multilateral work, um, and, and really looking to its own needs and, and economic objectives in doing so. And I think it's, and that is not a, you don't get to that position, you're constantly evolving. So New Zealand's work to do its EU um, trade agreement, the UK trade agreement, of course, CPTPP is all about diversifying because you must never put all your eggs in one basket in trade terms, as we know, because then you have, there are security implications. Speaking of trade, Britain and New Zealand will shortly launch trade negotiations, with British PM Boris Johnson saying New Zealand will be at or near the front of the queue. We think that uh, the New Zealanders are absolutely raring to go, and, and so are we. I think that New Zealand can negotiate a free trade agreement with the UK faster than any other country. This is Trade Minister David Parker. We're trusted long-term partners. We share institutional form. A lot of our institutions are based on theirs, actually, historically. Uh, And, of course, uh, we're an open trading nation, so we're not trying to put up protective barriers to exclude them from New Zealand. So we're in a position to go as fast as they can. There will obviously be some speed bumps, though. One of them is the arrangement New Zealand strikes with the UK about sheep meat. Currently, we export tariff-free 228,000 tonnes of sheep meat to the EU every year, with demand split about 50-50 between the UK and the rest of Europe. Now, Britain wants to split that down the middle, but that is very unappealing here, as it gives New Zealand much less flexibility. So it is complicated, and I think probably the best thing to say is it is being um, negotiated by the experts in Geneva through what's called the Article 28 process. So they're looking at that and trying to hammer out a way forward that meets everyone's concerns. Your role, Mm. this places you in a fascinating position because presumably there will, you know, both sides are acting in their self-interests here, and you are sort of a, a conduit in a sense between these two sovereign nations yeah. Do you think that your role is more vital now than it has been in the past during these negotiations? So, look, I think that certainly when there's in a period of disruption and a period of opportunity, there's a lot more work to do. And I do think there was a time, perhaps a couple, you know, generation or so back, when Australia, UK, New Zealand were kind of took each other a bit for granted. You know, there was a kind of sense of, you know, old loyal friends, but perhaps not massively exciting and there's a real sense now of opportunity of how much we can do and so it makes my job busier it makes it more challenging it makes it more interesting and it's probably uh, more interesting also for the government in the UK and for the government here in New Zealand. That's the detail for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by NZ On Air. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day and if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to the British High Commissioner, Laura Clark. You can follow her on Twitter at Laura Clark UK. And she does her own podcast, Tea with the High Commission. Cheerio. Cheerio.